Hello and welcome back to Doctor Informed. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 1. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed is primarily for those doctors working in hospitals, taking you beyond medical knowledge and talking about all those things that you need to be a good doctor but which don't necessarily involve medicine. I'm Clara Monroe, I'm a General Surgical Registrar in the northeast of England and I work as a freelance clinical editor at the BMJ. In our new season of Doctor Informed, we'll be discussing topics that are often perceived as taboo or which are not always talked about. And today, at popular request, we're talking about dun dun dun, coroner's court and inquests. I'm glad to be joined by our panel today, Katie and Aisha. Katie, would you like to introduce yourself first? Hi, yeah, thank you. My name is Katie Strong. I'm a general surgery registrar working in the northeast of England. And Aisha, really good to have you back. Hi, Clara. Thanks for having me. Um, so, hi, everyone. My name's Aisha Ashmore. I'm an Obs and Gynae Reg in the East Midlands. And do either of you have any experience of the topic that we're going to be discussing today? Unfortunately, yes. I've been to Coroner's Court relatively recently. So, uh, last year in September, I attended Coroner's Court um, with some of my consultant colleagues. Well, you're fresh from the uh, terrifying experience. And how about you, Aisha? So I don't have any personal experience, but as everyone's probably aware, obs and gynae is quite a litigious um, specialty and there's lots mm-hmm. of um, drama that occurs within our specialty. So I do have friends and colleagues who have um, been to coroner's court or have been asked to write statements and things. Really interesting to hear about your perceptions of that or your experience like through other people, because I think sometimes that can be maybe as harmful. <laughs> um In the interest of transparency, uh, I should also tell our listeners that our expert guest today has already met Katie, uh, and the reasons behind this will be revealed later in the podcast, but I'm delighted to introduce our expert guest today, Beth Walker. Beth, can you introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure, thanks for having me. Um, So my name's Beth. I was a palliative care doctor in the Seven Deanery, and then um, at the start of 2020, I moved to work for Medical Protection, where I work as one of the medical legal consultants. Um, and yeah, I'm really, really pleased to be here today. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's such a privilege to be able to hear somebody who's obviously both sides of the line in terms of understanding the legalities, um, but also having obviously vast clinical experience. So very interested. Um, in the new season of Doctor Informed, I'm really excited to introduce um, this brief introductory segment where I'm really keen that we discuss how medicine has been involved in the media in the last few weeks or months. Uh, Katie and Aisha, is there anything that's jumped out at you apart from the obvious discussions about strikes recently? So for me, the thing that's really been in the news and that I've been paying attention to is the story of um, Archie, the little boy Mm. who has just had his life support withdrawn. Um, I think that's been a really interesting case to follow from, you know, it's obviously heartbreaking, but in terms of the legalities behind that sort of decision-making and the strife of the family, it's been interesting to follow. And how about you, Aisha? Anything that you've picked up on on social media or in the news over the last few weeks? I guess, where do you start? Like, there's so much going on, isn't there? Like, obviously, there's the um, Archie story, which has been, you know, really difficult to listen to, actually. But Mm. then, on, like, more lighter notes, maybe med Twitter is always a source of amusement, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) 
and um, the the ongoing saga of the Royal Colleges and the, you know, diversifying the medical workforce um, disagreements. So there's there's a lot going on, isn't there? Yeah. And Katie, I'm interested that you picked up on the story about Archie. Can you link that to experience that you, you have on the wards or in your clinical practice? So there's been occasions where we've had patients whose health is not going the way we would hope. And actually, as a clinical body, we feel that palliation is the best course of action. And having those conversations with families can and do often go very smoothly if you have the right starting point and the right Mm. conversations and you're on the right page. And it's often, you know, in our sphere of work, we often are working in those conversations with older patients. So I suppose for me, it was that disconnect between I don't work in paediatrics and so having that conversation around Mm. a a child it must be so difficult and the quite clear difference in the family's viewpoint versus the clinician's viewpoint and also the other thing that um, really struck me about this story is how they kept having to reassure the media and the family that despite this disconnect in viewpoints they were still going to treat Archie and they were still going to you know, care for him as well as they could, despite the fact that um, uh, there was there was this ongoing legal battle. Do you, have people been talking about it on the on the wards? Have you heard people discussing it at work a lot? Not particularly, but then I, I suppose the the only thing that I have heard conversations about was they keep mentioning in the news when I read it on BBC websites. Um, they keep saying things like the reason that Archie fell into this. Um, coma and a kind of uh, state of non-responsiveness was because of a, a TikTok challenge and that's the bit that's been mm-hmm. generating a lot of conversation because they've been very I suppose the media doesn't want to advertise these TikTok challenges especially if they mm-hmm. do land you in such a position but f- you know your natural curiosity does lead you to down that road and I think that's the area that most of the conversations have taken place. Yeah I have to say it was um it was a bit of a struggle when I was reading the story not to then go down a rabbit hole of looking up what the TikTok challenge was because I was like, what is this? You know, yeah. obviously I'm old, so I don't have TikTok. But um, Have you heard people talking about it, Aisha? Have you had any differing viewpoints? or? I think um, given where I've worked and uh, in the past and um, the Hadiza Balgaba case and the little boy who died in, in Leicester, that you know there have been some like parallels drawn about decisions about care and whether to you know s- starting treatment withholding treatment these these kind of conversations but um not not as much as i was expecting to be honest um given even though that it was you know headlines on bbc news and all over the media um there hasn't been as much talk i don't think uh, yeah i think actually i've heard much more about strike action and i don't know Actually, if that's because people find it easier to talk about because it's something that they have control over. So I think often when you read cases, right, I mean, it's it's difficult to to say, oh, what would you do in that situation? Because there's so much information that you don't have. You know, you have three or four puzzle pieces from the, from the media and not a lot else. You guys <laughs> decided whether you'd strike if you voted in the ballot. So I'm a member of the BMA and I've definitely decided what I'm doing. Um... And I don't know, maybe it's because my husband is like very, very pro-union and it's like mm. rubbed off on me and I think he'd divorce me if I didn't. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I mean, 
there, there's been lots of discussions because like not everyone has the same viewpoint so it's actually been you know mm. causing quite a lot of hot debate and especially since you know we kind of went through this a few years ago when we were well when I was certainly in my foundation years and actually what did it achieve then it didn't achieve what we wanted to do so um I think it's it is dividing about whether you know people's opinions this time around yeah I think that's really interesting isn't it it's like there seems to be a bit of a difference in the camp between people who were involved in strike action in 2015 and the ones that weren't. Katie, have you seen that as well? Yeah, I was just going to say that it's actually really interesting you bring that up, that divide, because I think I'm probably on the other side of it. Having struck as well in... Strike? Mm. Struck? I'm not really quite sure what the right word for that <laughs> strike is. Strikehead. Strikehead. <laughs> Having strikehead in um, my... Fa- it was my F1 year, actually, and um, achieving so little and feeling very fraudulent for doing it and feeling very... Mm. Um, conflicted about leaving the wards and some people staying behind on the wards and saying oh it's just like a weekend or a night shift and then it was the thought was well what's the point of doing it if there's still the level of cover that we would normally provide but then equally if Mm. I don't strike it was I find this time round I'm much less engaged with the conversation because I just found it so pointless last time. That's interesting because I think I've heard people who were involved in the BMA at the time and you know, them saying, actually, we got a huge amount out of that strike that people take for granted because they don't they don't know what life would have been like had we not had the strike and then made those gains in the in the junior doctor's contracts. I just what think, think the, about that? Yeah, I think the story we were sold was was different from that. And I, I there's mm-hmm. a small part of me that makes me wonder whether we're just picking up the pieces and saying, look what we've won, but actually what we were aiming for was so different. But I think that the narrative is different this time because you know, on the back of the pandemic and COVID, I think people are feeling even more undervalued and even more overworked and burnt out than we were previously. And that, to me, back then, I thought that, yeah, yes, I would support the strikes, but it, it felt like it came out of nowhere. But maybe that's because, you know, I hadn't worked in the NHS for very long at that time. But, but now I think there's a real feeling of, you know, being undervalued and not just striking for us for our pay rise but also for generations of medical students and sixth formers and whatever that come after us and have this massive amount of debt that they're going to have that we didn't have I think it is slightly different from last time well a lot different actually but I don't know it's still up for debate do you think that the context that we're doing it in terms of like wider society you know we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis at the moment doctors who now I feel like I should just say this because actually I keep saying, oh, doctors are in the top 3% of earners in the UK. I actually looked this up the other day, prompted after a conversation to do this podcast, actually. And I was quite surprised to find that the top 10% of earning earners in the UK, you have to earn above 186,000 to be in that bracket. So clearly doctors are not in the top decile, let alone the top 3%. Um, but I was going to say, you know, doctors are... Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Um, doctors are perceived as, you know, we we earn a good salary what do you think about us striking in that context i think there's a big disconnect between the perception of our pay and the actual reality of our pay mm. like and you've just made that argument so so well clara because we think that we are paid really really well um but actually if if you look at the figures we you know we don't do we don't do badly but at the same time, we don't do extremely well, and if you take into account tax, then <laughs> actually, mm. are we in are we in the top 
brackets of um, earning. And personally, I, I don't think we are. And I also think there's an element of, are we legitimising or tacitly accepting that these conditions and these standards of work and therefore reducing the quality of health? I think there's, mm. there's a much wider argument. This. Yeah, that complicity is, I think when you see, when you look at it through that lens, it, it definitely changes how you feel about it, right? There's been um, a lot of discussion on my ward anyway about the more, most recent pay rise that we supposedly got um, that was, you know, all <laughs> dentists, doctors, healthcare's, porters, everybody, except most doctors. Actually, when you looked into it, the only people who were getting the pay rise who were doctors were GPs and uh, consultants, anyone on a training mm. path it's considered since the last, last strike that we've had our pay agreement and we don't we aren't entitled to anything else and that us in our position know that and are able to discern which bracket we fall into but the general public are seeing us having pay rises all the time and that's i think the second or third one since our strike that we've been left out of but the public perceive that we haven't yeah interesting well i think we could talk about this all day um but we have other matters to get to in today's episode but before we move into our um the meat of our discussion today here is a message from our sponsor at medical protection we're different with no financial caps or limits on the protection we offer members we take a discretionary approach to providing assistance this flexibility lets us help where other providers may not treating cases on their individual merits and adapting to a wider range of situations. As a member-owned, not-for-profit organisation, we exist to support your professional interests and protect your finances, career and reputation. Our doctor-to-doctor support and advice can help you navigate the way, whatever lies ahead. Plus, the number of times you contact our helpline won't affect what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. Isn't it time to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org UK. OK, back to the show. Before we move on to our main topic today, I must make two admissions. Firstly, uh, we are an all-female, all-surgical panel today. And I apologise for this because we definitely don't want to scare off the medics um, or any other specialties from this podcast. And I promise to strive to make for better representation next time. Um, I think it's also important to note that parts of this discussion will be really specific to the English legal system. uh, And I appreciate that this is less helpful to our many international listeners or those from other parts of the UK but I am hoping that between us we can cover some really useful information for anyone who has called to um, a court in a professional capacity. Um, I'm going to start with Katie. Katie please will you put us our listeners out of their misery and explain how you first came to meet um, Beth our expert on today's show. Your expert and my saviour. So (laughs) I was um, involved in a situation at work uh, where a patient unfortunately passed away. About three or four days later, I got an email off my consultant asking me to recount some events because the documentation had particularly been not very good, which was my fault. So I sent an email to the consultant explaining what had happened. And then I think maybe six hours later, I got another email from the 
powers that be in the hospital asking me to write a formal statement. So that was the beginning of my journey. Due to COVID, due to a mixture of various consultants not being available, my inquest didn't actually take place until 18 months later, during which time I ruminated and stressed and built it up in my head. But as soon as I was asked to write this statement, I got in touch with the MPS. And um, Dr. Walker was assigned to my case and we had a couple of email exchanges and a kind of preliminary chat. But because it was taking so long, we ended up having multiple chats, I think three or four in total, spread out between, you know, writing the statement itself all the way through to just before going to, to court. She helped me massively with writing the statement itself. And one of the th major things that she did, which really helped me, was don't listen to the hospital's timetable. You submit this when you're ready. You submit this when you're mm -hmm. happy with it. The deadline might be tomorrow for them, but actually for you, the deadline is when you're ready. And that, you know, took the pressure away because we're so used to pleasing other people. We're so used to working to the deadline of our seniors that actually I was terrified to submit the statement. And I just wanted somebody to say, I've read it through, make these changes, send it back to me. Yeah, OK, we're good to go now. So that was incredibly helpful. The other um, part of the journey that I found incredibly helpful was just the multiple reassurances of you're not the first one to do this. You won't be the last one to do this you haven't actually murdered anyone, Katie. Like, let's talk about this logically. Why are you being called? What is it they want from you? And, you know, just simple discussions about the layout of court and things like that were just, was so helpful. So 18 months after being invi invited um, to coroner's court, um, I went, I had the full day there and thankfully it's all behind me. Katie, I'm really interested and this is where I want to start by picking Beth's brain. Right at the beginning of the journey, why are some people called to coroner's court and why are some people not? Because it seems like premium bonds in terms of how often people get called and then some people never get called until they're, you know, really, really senior. I think it just depends on the on the case and the circumstances of the, you know, the patient and their care. Um, so the coroner is essentially, you know, there to look at the circumstances of someone's death and deaths will be referred to the coroner if there's a reason to suspect any unnatural element to their deaths or violent element to their deaths, which can include, um, you know, whether healthcare or healthcare procedures such as a surgery um, played a part in, in the circumstance of their death. Other reasons to go, you know, to be referred to the coroner are death that occurs in state custody. So in prison, in police custody, under the section of the Mental Health Act, that would all count as state custody. Um, and when the cause of death is unknown, even after a post-mortem examination. So they're the main reasons that it would go, um, you know, for the um, to a coroner's referral. And then the coroner looks at the case and it's entirely at their discretion who they decide they want a statement from. But what they need to do as a coroner is answer four questions. And the first three are, are relatively straightforward in most cases, which is who, who is the deceased, so their name? When did they die? Where did they die? So again, in hospital, that is very straightforward to answer. Um, in some other cases, you, you can imagine, for example, if it's not known or if a patient has been found, for example, in their house and it's not mm. quite clear when, when they died, that's a different kettle of fish. But in hospital, you can be pretty certain. But it's the fourth question that for almost all inquests is, is the main thing, which is how did this patient come by their death? So that's not simply 1A, you know, myocardial infarction. It's mm -hmm. the run up to their death. It's anything that might have been relevant or played a part in their death. So, for example, the care that they received before, that would all come under this fourth question. So I think really in answer to your question, 
it really just depends on the individual coroner, the individual circumstances, and whether they think, you know, that particular doctor can provide them helpful information to understand how this patient might have died. So, yeah, it does depend. And I, I know what you mean. And it doesn't, it, it really doesn't mean anything to be, you know, for someone to have been called to a coroner's court and someone else to make it 10 years without. I think it just, you know, it's just one of those things. And it just depends if you're, you know, in that situation where it's felt that you have some, you know, some helpful information. Is it somewhat dependent on your documentation? If you are a perfect documenter and you write five pages, will you never get called to coroner's court all that? That, that doesn't have anything to do with it. No, not necessarily. Um, you know, there there's some instances where the coroner recognises that the medical records can be as full as they, you know, might possibly be, but that's no substitute for a doctor kind of explaining a little bit more around what happened and why, what was their reasons for doing it, you know, any other it, it, helpful information about the patient's background that that doctor can provide. So, no, it, it, it is you know is the is the main answer, but what. When you are in the situation where you're trying to recount something that you perhaps did, you know, obviously in Katie's case, she's described that she was approached about a statement very, very close to when the, you know, the patient was actually under mm. the team's care. But but very often it can be months or even, you know, up to a year that you will get that approach from the coroner. So actually in those instances, if your documentation is, um, you know, a little bit less than than ideal, then it's really hard to remember mm. what you did and why. And if there's any question about what you did and why, then you're more likely to need to rely on things like, you know, your um, your usual practice, which while is still helpful for the coroner, it's not quite as strong as, well, these are the contemporaneous notes I made at the time. So, mm. yeah, I would say that while it, it, if you make the world's most perfect notes, that does not mean that, you, you know, you won't end up... <laughs> needing to write a statement um <laughs> it, it does really help you it does really help you both for you know um to protect your professional position to say well this is what why I did that and and you know these are all the factors I took into account at the time and and that makes it much clearer um to understand in in retrospect but also just for you know for continuity for people to know what happened after your involvement in their care whether that impacted on people coming after you so there's lots of reasons mm. that it's really you know obviously really important to do so but yeah I would re- reassure anyone that it's not something that is there as a as a punishment for not having written it's really because your personal involvement in the case um you know has, has obviously meant that the coroner thinks that you can you can help them out in in coming to that you know that answer to that fourth question how, how did they die Aisha, you mentioned that you haven't been to coroner's court. What are your perceptions of it? Well, <laughs> I've, even though I haven't been, I've heard a lot about it. And I think, you know, the, the first emotion that hits me when you say the word coroner is, is fear. Because yeah. immediately you just think, oh my God, I, like that's it. I'm going to be referred to the GMC. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be struck off. Um, I'm going to be cross-examined by a barrister. I, know, I don't even know if that happens in coroner's court, but that's what I imagine. <laughs> um, and, it, and it seems to play out like a Netflix court drama in my mind. Um, and I don't know if that's like normal for everyone else, but certainly that's, that's how I perceive it. I feel like this would be a good time for Katie to share her recurrent nightmares that she used to share with us um, in the run-up to her inquest. Yeah, yeah, I did definitely say multiple times that I was definitely going to be led away in chains. I was on the verge of uh, selling all my property and possessions and 
But no, it wasn't as bad as all that, partly because I was such a small cog in a larger story. And actually, the, mm. the coroner didn't really care that much specifically about me. As as <laughs> Beth says, like, my input was valuable, but it I wasn't the only player in that game. So that, once I got there and once I got into the swing of things, I massively realised that actually my importance was was small as much as I like to think that I am you know all changing and all seeing and all doing it wasn't the case um it is strange because there are barristers there or lawyers or whatever the specific titles are but they're from what I understood and from what I saw they don't talk to you they they talk to the coroner so they either interject and challenge the their kind of opposition person via the coroner or challenge the coroner to clarify a question but they don't talk to me directly um and that was a massive thing that that soothed my soul because they they did have a bit of a shark did this family so um I was quite keen not to be on the receiving end of that bite Beth who are the lawyers slash barristers slash their title that I don't know what it actually technically is um who were they representing so it's a really good question so it an inquest you don't have parties like the prosecution and the defense like in a trial it's it's specifically not a trial you can only have witnesses called to an inquest but there are two types of witnesses so um someone might be called as a factual witness only so they're purely there to give their evidence um they aren't entitled to legal representation they aren't entitled to any evidence um you know to to have disclosure of any evidence before the inquest and they are solely there to um to help inform the coroner the other kind of witness, um, if you're called to an inquest, is what's known as a um, interested person. And that means that the coroner has given you this additional status because they recognise that there might be some difficult questions asked of you, you know, perhaps by the family or there's been some suggestion of criticism of your care. And being an interested person, um, you know, whilst it's a, it can feel an uncomfortable position to be because obviously it's recognised that there is that potential but it does come with advantages. So you're entitled to legal representation at the inquest, which means you have a barrister representing your interests. And you also have sight of all the evidence. So any other witness statements, any expert reports, post-mortem findings, all of that, you're entitled to have sight of um, in the run-up to the inquest so that you know, you know, you know the bigger picture and you know how your evidence is going to fit in um, with that other evidence. Um, I should just say, so, you know, obviously, given the nature of the podcast, when you're a hospital doctor for an NHS trust, um, it's almost always the case that the NHS trust will be the interested person and not an individual doctor. Now, it's slightly different in the world of GP, but in a um, in a hospital trust where the patient has died in that trust, it's just extremely likely that the, you know, the coroner will confer interested person status on that trust to, to entitle them to have that support and disclosure. And that means that all employees of the trust that are being called to the inquest, you know, under the umbrella of that um, trust representation, you, you will have also the benefit of the trust's legal representation. So you're, you're an interested person in the sense that you're an employee of the trust who is the interested person, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, that, that actually is. So the family, much more interesting. yeah, yeah, definitely. You're not. Um, it's it's rare for a trust doctor to be, um, you know, singled out as not being part of the trust. And I think that's probably a useful topic to come on to perhaps later, um, because it's it's not the norm, and I don't want the impression from this to be given that it is. Um, so what happens in terms of the family is that they may also have legal representation. Now they don't always. Sometimes they will represent themselves, which means the family may ask you know questions of the doctors um, or other healthcare professionals directly 
But if they have got legal representation, then there will also be a barrister for the family. So all of these interested persons are there and their legal reps. And, you know, as Katie said, that they're actually answering the coroner's questions. So the witnesses' answers are directed to the coroner. And the coroner will always ask questions first. And then the other interested persons, barristers, can ask questions afterwards of each witness. But the coroner will step in. So it's not a free-for-all. It's not a forum where, you know, it's like the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. It's very, very controlled. The coroner is there to answer these four specific questions. If they feel that the questions are going beyond that remit, then they will step in. They're very sensitive to the fact that this may well be the first time and or only time that the family, so the bereaved family, will have an opportunity to perhaps ask some of the questions that they may need to, to really understand what happened. So often with the family, they may give them a little bit more leeway in some of the questioning just so that they can allow them that understanding. Um, <clears throat> but equally, they, you know, they will step in. They're, they are there to you know, stick within their remit. That, that's, that's the purpose of the, you know, the coroner's court. So I would want to reassure anyone listening that it is totally different to probably any type of court that you've seen on you know, TV or film. That's Aisha's Netflix uh, drama that she's written in her head gone out the window. Sorry, Aisha. <laughs> I know. Well, I was envis- envisaging like an OJ Simpson trial, but clearly it's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's that's what we know. Like, we talk about you know law and courts, and that's what we think. So when we get asked to come to court, I guess I'm interested, Beth, because obviously you now work for MPS, so you are there to advise doctors a lot about this. When you were working in clinical practice yourself, <laughs> was were there things that you... What was the most common kind of thing that you immediately thought, oh, why was I thinking that? You know, that's complete nonsense. You know, were there really obvious things that a lot of doctors think that, that you realised were just not the case? That's a really good question. Um, I should say um, that I was a medic through and through, so in terms of your uh, <laughs> diversity, I can... <laughs> Yes, I do have a medic. Yeah, do you know, I think the main misunderstanding that I had, and I think a lot of my colleagues did, was that I always thought that the worst thing that could possibly happen to me was that a patient might make a claim relating to something that I'd done. And actually, that claim is against the trust or, Mm. you know, the NHS. It is not against the individual doctor. And it's all managed. So if you were to have a claim, the, the trust legal team would step in, they would do all the groundwork, you might have to contribute to a report to help them understand what happened. And that is pretty much it. it. You know, it's you have nothing to do with the payout. There's no risk to you individually. And and I think I never, I just never really realised that. It was just constantly my biggest fear. Whereas now I'm much more aware of the other things that doctors might face, like inquests or complaints or, you know, GMC investigations, mm. disciplinary, pro- those are now much more on my radar, obviously, because of what I do. But I do remember almost the whole way through being most fearful of a claim. And it really is the, it's probably the least worrying thing now. If I had to pick one thing to happen to me, I would I don't talk- know if that's more or less true. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's not, it, it really should take, you know, that that is out of your hands, a claim. You can only do your best. And if something, um, if a claim is to be brought, you, you know, your trust is vicariously liable for its employees and that's that. So I think, yeah, that's probably the biggest change in my perspective. Yeah, I was going to say, can I go back to Aisha? Because actually she's mentioned a few key terms. We've talked about Balgaba, we've talked about GMC, and obviously you're an obstetrician gynae trainee. Can you wrap all these things together and talk to us about 
how that plays on your mind in your clinical practice? Well, well, the other thing is that I've worked in Leicester. So the Hadiza Baragaba case is like really, you know, at the forefront of my mind. And mm. I guess my question to you, Beth, is really about um, like what you were mentioning about usually it's trust representation. Um, but in the Hadiza Balgaba case, obviously there was a lot of crowdfunding for her um, because of all, everything that occurred in, in her case. And, you know, that's quite a worry, especially when you're in specialties such as mine or any specialty, I guess. So what kind of happens in that situation? Essentially, the trust's lawyer act for the trust. They are the client. And so um, employees of the trust, as long as their position aligns with that of the trust, then they can come into their representation and there's no professional legal conflict for the lawyers. Just some examples to give where perhaps that position of the doctor, an individual doctor can be in conflict, can be, for example, if the trust has done uh, an SI investigation into um, an event or, you know, for example, a patient's death, and um, there's a real divergence of, of views between one particular doctor and either the rest of the trust or another doctor, for example, surgeons versus anaesthetists. The trust lawyer cannot represent both those views. If, if they conflict that much, then, then they cannot represent both of them. And so it might be the case that they, you know, will come down on whichever doctor in that example, so surgeon versus anaesthetist, most aligns with the trust position, so most aligns with the SI findings. So it might be that, you know, the, the surgeon, um, their position aligns with the trust and then the anaesthetist disagrees with the SI report, disagrees with the SI findings. And then they have to be separated out because essentially there is a legal conflict. Um, so that's an example of when that doctor will be told, you know, the, the trust representation can no longer represent you. Um, another <laughs> Again, less common scenario, but can happen is if an individual doctor, because of their particular involvement in the case, feels that they're in their own personal individual interests and not being best represented by the the trust legal team, then they also may end up being separated out. Um, But that's where your medical defence organisation would come in. So that's another reason why it's so important. This isn't just a plug for MPS. It's any (laughs) any medical... (laughs) any medical defence organisation, that's where your non-claims cover, so your professional protection for things like inquests, um, you know, GMC investigations, that's where that comes in because, you know, you can approach your MDO straight away. And I, I had this last Friday, for example, and I had a, a solicitor instructed for the member by the Monday and we heard about it, at, you know, Friday at 2pm. So if we feel that it's in your interest to, to have legal representation at the inquest and become an interested person in your own right, because that's not a given, that's a consideration, that's a discussion with the member. Um, but often that is the case. And then we instruct representation for you. You attend the inquest as your own interested person with the barrister. And, and that can be done, you know, we've got a pretty <laughs> got a pretty good record on turnaround if that's needed, because sometimes it does happen because of a late development. And, and that's why it's so important. I honestly can't bear to think of what it might feel like if you didn't have that support and you were put in that situation. So, yeah, it's just another, you know, really important reason to make sure you've got the right um, protection in place. Beth, when it comes to, we talked, you know, if we're talking about the Baragaba case, we can't talk about that without talking about systems and issues within the system. And, you know, obviously, you weren't involved in the discussion at the beginning about the system that we're working in and striking and all of that. But I'm sure that you 
know what that's like as a clinician. If you go to coroner's court, does the coroner take into account the system in the same way that maybe the court didn't in the Bauer-Gaba case? That's a good question. I think um, with a coroner's court, the, it might be helpful to start answering your question by talking about the potential outcomes, because I think then that will help explain my answer. Mm. So when the coroner you know, has considered all the evidence and gives their conclusion, um, they will do a summing up and then a, um, often either a short form conclusion or a bit of a narrative conclusion. But they have two hats. So they're not only there to, to come to a, um, you know, a conclusion as to how the patient came by their death. They have this additional hat, which is around prevention of future deaths. So as part of their summing up and their consideration, if they feel that there are any systems issues or policies, um, organisational factors um, in particular, that contributed to their death, then they can issue what's known as a prevention of future deaths report. And that is something, that's a legal document that, you know, the trust, for example, if that's the organisation it's issued to, must comply with. It's published, it's sent to the CQC, you know, it's a really big deal to get a prevention of future deaths report and trusts and their legal teams are desperate to avoid it. And Mm. so in the run up to preparing for a coroner's inquest, the, the trust, it's absolutely in their interest to do everything they can to demonstrate that they've looked into what happened really closely They've looked at any systems issues in particular, because for a coroner, they're the things that are going to mean that it might happen again. Not a mm. one-off individual, you know, lapse of judgment on, on one clinician's part. It's things like, you know, insufficient um, induction or a policy or a practice that means that something is going to happen again and someone will slip through the net again. So the trusts are very alive to the fact that they do a really thorough investigation. So either an RCA or an SI investigation, for example, and then they put into place action points already so that by the time they get to the inquest, they're effectively saying, look, we, we recognise that these contributed, but look at all the things that we've already put in place. This will not happen again. You don't need to issue us a prevention of future deaths report. <clears throat> so I think actually because of that, it's almost an even better position to be in as a trust option. That's another advantage of staying within that umbrella of the trust representation because they don't want any of their employees to be singled out. They want to, to carry everyone through and the trust showing that lessons have been learned where they needed to and changes are already made. And we don't want your PFD, thank you very much, because it's a real, you know, it's really significant and, and it, it's not good reputationally. There's lots of, you know, disadvantages about having one. They have to write a formal response. So, yeah, I, th- I think I hope that might be reassuring, actually, because that is very much what trusts are geared up to when they go into an inquest where there might have been systems issues. For the for the most part, obviously, I can't, no one can say for every single case, but, mm. but certainly in our experience, that's the approach that almost all trusts will take. Katie, does that align with your experience in terms of the learning that was done before you went to, to inquest? Definitely. I mean, having having had to wait 18 months to go, the trust had plenty of time to to sort themselves out. I think I was very lucky because I'd actually rotated out of the trust, then back into it. So by the time that the inquest came round, you know, they were having lots of meetings with me saying things like, oh, no, this is what the SI investigation has um, come up with. This is what as a trust we've done. You know, this is what we feel was something you could have done differently they were very supportive but the the key thing was 
um, all the kind of educational things they'd put in place. Um, for, for my particular case, it, it hinged on a completely different fundamental understanding of the same diagnosis from surgeons to gastro. Um, and mm. that was a big part of the re-education and the kind of making sure the whole trust were on the same page about, you know, when we use this term, this is what we mean. When we use this other term, this is what we mean. And they are separate and, you know, not equal. Yeah, the, the involvement in the SI was really helpful to me to understand how I fitted into the story. And like Beth says, I the trust was the interested party and not me. And understanding my kind of alignment with the trust's position made me feel so much more reassured because one of our early conversations was because I said you know I need a lawyer I need a lawyer and Beth was like you don't you're fine <laughs> um but the more I kind of learned about the SI the more I was reassured by that and started to believe her <laughs> and Aisha you did your fellowship at the CQC and I'm interested in terms of PFGs is that something that you saw the other side of when you were working for the CQC um, to be honest, that never came up whilst I was there. But like all of the maternity issues that had cropped up around the country, you know, <laughs> I mean, they were keeping you busy. Uh, yeah, yeah, they <laughs> did keep me busy. I must say, <laughs> um, you know, all of them were investigated and there were reports and, you know, it, it, they did look into the kind of SIs that um, investigations that were done. But do you know what was interesting from what Katie was just saying was the, the rotational element of being a junior doctor and how that links in with responding to requests to attend an inquest and things. And I just think that's really, really difficult. You know, you're, you know, say this happened at the end of rotation and you're moving, you know, halfway across the deanery to another hospital. I, I genuinely don't know how people maintain the relationships and the contact in to a carry on doing their job especially in a new hospital where no one knows you and you have to, to you know develop that trust again whilst having all of this go on in the background I think that's incredibly hard so yeah just to to add in with that the the, the main thing that really followed me around was because I kept having to have ARCPs and I kept having to have new supervisors and I kept having to explain the story and every time I said it to anybody I felt like I was on trial and my inquest happened to be the day after an ARCP so then it lasted a whole other cycle and then it had to be kind of relived again and again and again. Yeah I think for just to explain for our international listeners your ARCP is your sort of annual review of competencies and you my understanding, Katie, is you cannot sort of pass your ARCP, you cannot move on to the next stage officially until the inquest is done and dusted and under your belt. Is that right? I'm not sure about whether they'll hold you back, but, you know, luckily I wasn't at a critical pro- progression point. Um, but certainly it gets brought up, it gets rediscussed, it can't be laid to rest until the final conclusion is had. Um, and so for me, having it the day, my my review the day before my inquest um was incredibly frustrating and my training program director was getting quite frustrated with me like it was somehow my fault which didn't help um but yeah so it does it doesn't go away until it's gone away and then the next kind of ARCP or review seals it off 
I do want to re- uh, reassure listeners that I, I'm not aware of any reason why being involved in an inquest alone would prevent your progression. You know, Katie's absolutely right. There's a form, I think it's the form B where you just have to declare if there's any, you know, current complaint or process. And unfortunately, exactly as you said, I suppose that if it was the day after, then that would last another year till it's, you know, done and you can say, you know, no, that's all concluded. But but in and of itself, being involved in an inquest shouldn't have any, you know, impact on your competence or, or your outcome at an ARCP. <laughs> So this is a very logistical question. When Katie was talking to me about how she'd gone to her inquest, the court itself is quite small most of the time. What do you do if outside the courtroom you bump into one of the family? That's a good question and I I don't think I've been asked it before, but I, I, I would say, you know, be yourself and be compassionate and if it feels natural or right to you know make an acknowledgement or then do so and if it does I think you just have to trust your own kind of instinct on that point but remembering that they're there as a bereaved family and it can feel really hard in the run-up because you've seen some of perhaps the questions that they've put to the trust or they it might be quite um aggressive or angry um some of the Mm. language might be very emotional and it can feel really hard being confronted by the family when you actually get to the inquest. I know I went to an inquest with a member um, a few months ago and they were sitting just next to us and it was really, really difficult. But I think it's just about remaining, you know, professional, remembering you're there as a doctor and acting, you know, in a a compassionate and, and, you know, kind way as as much Mm. as you can in your interactions. Katie, I feel like you wanted to jump in that. Yeah, I do. Um, (laughs) I, that situation sounds awful Beth but luckily my my inquestors um they gave us specific arrival times and they herded us into specific rooms so the uh trust and their various interested parties um were invited in I think about half an hour 40 minutes before the inquest and we were put in a room that was nearby where the family were but completely separate different doorways frosted glass you couldn't you couldn't see in or out um so we were we were invited through at a completely separate time. And I think they do try and make it so that the family are least impacted by that. So I think we were there hanging around waiting for ages. Yeah, and I think that highlights the the sort of variety of coroner's courts and the setups across the country, because absolutely that sounds ideal. And that's certainly the setup that I remember when I went to observe one in one area. And then this one I'm mentioning more recently was in a different area. And the other thing to say is that they're not always in actual court coroner's court designated building sometimes they will have be in a almost a conference room in a hotel and it's very strange that there's this sort of court set up um over covid and, and still now um some uh inquests are still remote so it's really really varied but that yeah katie that sounds like they they did it in a really sensitive um mm. way which which is great what are your reflections on that aisha i was just um interested to hear um your comment um beth about you know being compassionate because you know, my experience of maybe not coroner's court, but certainly like writing statements and, um, you know, being involved in an incident was that there was a real reluctance for us as doctors to be able to say sorry. Um, and not sorry, at, like in the way of admitting guilt and blame and, uh, and all of that, but rather than, but being compassionate and being, I'm so sorry that this happened and being able to to be able to demonstrate that level of kindness and empathy and that and from a you know my experience was that no one wanted you to do that because it felt like then you were responsible for what happened 
I think that's it's really true and I think um the underlying message is that an apology that something has happened to someone is an admission of liability um and I think especially in coroner's court offering your condolences or saying um in a complaint I'm really sorry that this experience has happened to you I'm really sorry that you've had this experience mm. that that is you know setting a kind and conciliatory tone from the outset and that in itself is not admitting liability and it's actually more likely to de-escalate the situation um you know from the get-go so we definitely you know medical protection in in our advice on complaint responses we we will always advocate you know that that kind of approach because in our experience it is most likely to to get the you know the conciliatory tone across and diffuse the situation and it's in coroner's court it, it doesn't always feel appropriate to perhaps offer condolences it really depends on that relationship that you had with the um patient's family and for some of our members they they you know they say look i, I actually don't think that that would feel right and, and that's you know that that's absolutely fine and in some especially in gps um you know they might have known the family for years and it is really appropriate to start their evidence by saying you know I first want to say I'm so sorry that you know X has um you know has died I would wanted to offer my condolences so it's very individual it depends on the relationship and the doctor but it's certainly not something that I think it's something that is received really well by the coroner and the family if appropriate. We are coming to the end of this episode but I want to wrap it up with obviously we Beth you've given us loads and loads of really like amazing advice that I'm sat here thinking oh right I kind of get it a lot more now so thank you for doing that um Katie you've been in coroner's court most recently out of all of us what are your top tips practical non-practical whatever it is what are your top tips on going to coroner's court so it may sound really silly, but wear an outfit that you feel powerful in, because if you're not thinking about what you're wearing, you know, particularly as lady doctors, occasionally buttons are an issue. Um, so just you wear something that you feel powerful in that you can just forget about and move on and, you know, don't have to think about adjusting your skirt or, you know, making sure your shirt's OK. Um, secondly, if you can develop a good relationship with the other people that are going, your consultants, your other registrar colleagues, whoever it is that's going, and just kind of be a support system for each other because no matter how much reassurance you get, you will still be nervous because this is not an experience you've had before necessarily. Um, and third, don't do what I did, which is drink an entire bottle of sparkling water 10 seconds before you're about to give your evidence because that was very stressful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> don't drink sparkling water. Brilliant, brilliant advice for anyone going to coroner's court. Absolutely um... key. <laughs> Sorry, I just had one final thought. Just the amount of people, once I started talking about the inquest with supervisors, other colleagues, the amount of people who were like, oh, I know somebody who you need to talk to or, oh, actually, I had to go write a statement for this. And, and you know, it's not the kind of, kind of conversation you would have in normal ward-based chat, but the amount of people who've actually been involved, you'd be really surprised about who and who hasn't. And, you know, people who've had um, experience with, for instance, the mm. MPS and have advice for you that you wouldn't have otherwise found. Did you always get good advice? No. Um, <laughs> I did. One of the first people to volunteer advice to me really put the wind up me, actually, and was telling me a story about how they had been to coroner's court and their trust had basically had very slopey shoulders and tried to lay all the blame at his door, which was not what I wanted to hear at that point. No. But I fully believed it, fully was like, I'm going down for this, this is the end subsequent pieces of advice helped to dismantle that belief system that I'd put in place in my own head but not every piece of advice 
is good. I would say listen to a wide range of audiences and somewhere in the middle lies the truth. Beth, is there anything else that you think is kind of pearls of wisdom for people either right at the beginning of the process when they're first asked to write a statement maybe for a for a, an SI, a serious incident, or, you know, on the day of coroner's court, anywhere in that process where you think that there are some really top tips that, that doctors should know? Yeah, definitely. Um, although I do think we should add the sparkling water onto our fact sheet, perhaps. That's a classic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think at the start, firstly, um, don't panic. Things go wrong. And the best thing you can do is seek support you know, at an early stage from a senior colleague, um, from your medical defence organisation, just be open and honest. Um, things happen, things happen where it's not um, anyone's fault um, and things go wrong. And that's because medicine is, um, you know, it's done by humans and none of us are perfect and, and things happen and errors happen. So from the start, being open, honest um, and reflective as appropriate is the best thing that you can do um, throughout the process. Seeking advice from your defence organisation as soon as possible just helps you front load all that preparation on the very first statement that you're going to make about what happened, because it then can go on to perhaps other things, you know, especially if someone's died, potentially that SI report then goes to the coroner and then it might be using the complaint further down the line. So it's just so important that you feel happy with it. Like Katie said, get enough time. There's always more time. And it's just so important that, you, you know, you feel that it's it's accurately represented you know your account um what you did and why and um yeah so i think from the at the very start that would be my top tips i think when you get to the inquest just remember that you're there to do a really important role you're there to help the coroner and you're there to um provide information that only you can provide in your you know professional capacity as to what happened i think the top tips that we give in terms of giving evidence might be really helpful to touch on here because there are two. Um, one is be honest and that's not meant to be contrite. It is about being honest about what you know and what you don't know because sometimes you're desperate to want, you know, want to be helpful, you want to try and answer the question. But sometimes the honest answer is I don't know or I can't remember and it's absolutely mm. fine to say that. In fact, it's much better to say that than somehow speculate um, on what you know, perhaps um, might be the case. But, but if you don't know, just say you don't know. And the second one is answer the question that you've been asked. It's very tempting when you're that nervous <laughs> that you're not quite listening or you haven't understood or your brain's been somewhere totally different and you're not quite sure of what you've been asked. Just ask for it to be repeated. That's absolutely fine. But, but very important to just simply ask what you've been asked and then stop. There will be silences because the coroner has to write notes and that's not something that you need to fill because that's also a temptation, especially again when you're nervous. So we always say, just stop, you've answered the question. If there are follow-up questions, let them be asked. And I think as Katie said, you said it really well, you are not the first person to go through this and, and we are absolutely geared up to help you. This is what we do day in, day out and we really want to try and make it an easier process for our members. So, yeah. Aisha, any last minute questions or reflections from you on any of that, apart from uh, never drinking sparkling water again? <laughs> yeah, I won't be doing that, definitely. Um, and I power dress all the time anyway, having being a five-foot woman and a um, kind half-semi-surgical specialty. But um, I guess my take-home is don't panic, take your time and um, get, some, get some help from your colleagues and from your defence union. 
Well, I think that this has been a fantastically informative episode and I thank you all so much for joining us. Um, That is all we have time for today on Doctor Informed. Um, We're really keen to hear from our listeners for ideas of future discussions, reflections on the topics we've discussed or things that we've discussed in the past. Please get in touch with us. If you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or share with people that you know. Tell your friends about it. That really helps people find us. If you'd like to hear other episodes, subscribe to Doctor Informed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from, and you'll be notified of when our next podcast is up. Thank you, Beth. Thank you, Katie. And thank you, Aisha. We'll see you all next time. Hey.